Well, welcome to another episode of See Here Love. And wow, we have got a great show for you. Did you know that one in 45 people are autistic? And so I really wanted to learn about what it means to be an autistic, how they see the world. And so I'm talking with Daniel Bowman Jr. He was diagnosed at the age of 35 with autism. And he sits down to talk with me about the autism spectrum, uh, the gift of neurodiversity, how to love your autistic neighbor well, uh, the church and autism, his encouragement to neurotypical persons, uh, encouragement to those with autism, and, and what it really means to love and be other-centered. It's amazing. He also wrote a book called On the Spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity. Fantastic. So if you uh, have autism or you know somebody who does, then this conversation is for you to learn, get your pen out, write some notes, share it with others. But here is my conversation with Daniel Bowman Jr. Well, welcome Daniel Bowman Jr. to See Here Love. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Melinda, for having me. All right. I have a lot of questions for you. And first of all, I just need to say thank you so much for writing this book on the spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity, uh, filled with great stories and information and learning and wisdom and lots of really cool quotes from all kinds of poets and authors I have never even heard of, which is a really great learning for me. But, um, you know, Daniel, our, our listeners are all about story. So I think mm -hmm. the first thing is they want to get to know you and especially that you were diagnosed at the age of 35 with autism. Uh, let's start with that because I think that's fascinating, interesting. Tell us maybe a bit about your upbringing and then how this diagnosis came to be. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, it, at the beginning of the book, I start writing about uh, a time of personal crisis in my life uh, around the time I was 35. And um, I had, I, I guess, you know, going back to my childhood, I always known that I was somewhat different um, and just experienced life a little more different, uh, differently from other people, um, a little more intensely maybe uh, is how I would say it. And I was always called, you know, oversensitive or too emotional and, and things like that. And um I thought later in life, I thought, well, I, I studied to become a poet. And so it makes sense that I'm a sort of sensitive, emotional type. Uh, but in fact, there were all these other characteristics and traits. Um, I had, I felt sensory overload sometimes, like quite often. I didn't have the language to describe it. But if the temperature was too warm in the room, or if the lights were too bright, or, um, or there's a loud noise. And then a couple other things, uh, for example, and these are just sort of straight characteristics of, of um, autism. If, if I had a routine that was changed on the fly, you know, without my knowing in advance, that would really, um, I would really struggle with that. 
um, or if there's any sort of surprise really, or um, a collapse in the structure that I was accustomed to every day, I would have a very, very hard time. Well, in my 30s, I mean, I went to spiritual direction and I went to church and, and I prayed and have done lots of um, seeking of after wisdom and self-awareness. And yet the word autism never showed up on my radar until I was in my mid thirties. And then at, at one point I just had a, a, a real meltdown. And I thought to myself, um, why does this happen to me? Why am I different from everybody else? If, if people can kind of take things as they come and, and roll with the changes, why can't I? Um, it's so hard for me. And I began to, um, study even more and try to figure out, okay, there's, I've been treated for anxiety and depression and all these things, but are those in fact just symptoms of something bigger? And then when I stumbled upon what was then called Asperger's syndrome, um, <clears throat> I, I just, I checked every box and I thought, okay, there's this secret um, kind of uh, knowledge that I didn't possess before. And I, I felt like it was a gift from God um, not because it answered all my um, prayers or fixed all my problems, but because it was a pathway forward. And when you grow up thinking that you're quirky and weird and oversensitive and too emotional and all these things, but you don't have a name for that, then you just think, well, I'm just, I'm just bad. I'm a bad person or I'm bad at life or um, I just don't feel like I fit anywhere. Uh, why can't I be like everybody else? But when you have a name for it, you can sort of redeem those, those, those years from your past and even into your childhood and say, um, all right, this was not my fault. I wasn't bad. I didn't make poor decisions. I just, my brain is just wired differently and I never knew it until later on, so. Wow, Dan, I think, I wonder how many others are not diagnosed. Like if yeah. you're 35. And as you yeah. say this, I wonder how many people, you know, even listening or even people that I'm thinking of, it's like they probably are feeling or felt the same way. And I think naming something is so important. And I, I wonder, because I mean, you're, in your book, it's, you know, one in 45 people are autistic. Yeah. So it, it, that's just an interesting stat in that. And then there's people like yourself for 35 years, you never knew that you were. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 um, you know, someone was asking me the other day, you know, what, what might it have been like if you had a diagnosis as a child? And I just, I, it's so hard to answer that because yeah. I do, you know, I write this book and, and I, I only hope that if I can help normalize autism um, and put a face to it, um, this may be a little different from some of the images people have seen before on television and in movies, um, then maybe it will help achieve diagnosis for more young people um, so that they can get the support that they need, you know, earlier on, whether it's for school or emotional and uh, mental health support and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, there are a lot of autistics out there and many of us don't know it for a long time because uh, we didn't, you know, I grew up in, the, in, in upstate New York in the 1980s and early 90s. And the only picture of autism I think I had was a Dustin Hoffman playing Rain Man, Man. you know, yeah. uh, opposite Tom Cruise. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, well, if you're autistic, you must be a, a math savant and some kind of genius. And I certainly was not that at all. <laughs> so um, I've tried to put my story out there and, and um, help normalize it, I think, and help maybe help the next generation um, get the help that they need. 
Fantastic. Dan, you know, for people who aren't familiar, when we talk about the autism spectrum, what, what does that mean? And I think maybe too, like, you know, you gave some great examples of your own experience, you know, as you're saying, these are some things that I didn't, until I had the word for it, I didn't know that that was Asperger's. Yeah. But yeah. Let's talk about that because for some people, this is, this could be new or they just are not informed about the spectrum and what that looks like. So maybe you can just help us understand what this, that's the autism spectrum means. Yeah, sure. Um, and this took a lot of research and study for me to understand too. But um, when I first started looking into everything, you know, it seemed to be there were two basic camps of autism. Uh, there was this sort of severe or classical uh, autism that, that looks sometimes like um, it's often a child you see it in and it, it's so severe that you can't ignore the problem. You don't, uh, it, it's very clear that there's something different um, cognitively and emotionally and even physically. Um, and then there were the so-called high-functioning autistics or uh, people with Asperger's syndrome. Um, in 2013, here in the U.S. anyway, uh, the DSM-5 was released, and that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that clinicians and researchers and doctors use to make di uh, diagnostic decisions. They decided in 2013 to, to take Asperger's syndrome and autism and say, you know what, these are actually um, sort of different uh, manifestations of, this, of the very same thing, except that in some cases, some of the um, characteristics and traits are more extreme, mm -hmm. uh, but, but essentially they're the same thing. Um, and so we're gonna fold that all into this thing called the autism spectrum. And now if you get a diagnosis, you won't get an Asperger's diagnosis, you'll get a, a diagnosis of autism. So um, a lot of people, of course, it's confusing because a lot of people say, oh, I, I have a nephew who's autistic and he's nonverbal. How could you possibly be autistic? You're a university professor. You write books, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, we can. It's a spectrum and um, different characteristics and traits appear more intensely in different people on, on the spectrum. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a good explanation. And again, a spectrum is that. It's right? It's not just like one place, but the spectrum is like this. I, I visualize it as like a line of just the different parts. That makes a Yeah. Lot and it, it's a line. And I would say maybe a lot like a color spectrum color to think spectrum. of as a good yeah. image rather than if some people think it's, it's a line between um, very autistic and not very autistic, just mildly autistic. And then somewhere in the middle, that's not really uh, the way that it works because um, in fact, someone like, like me, um, when I'm having sensory overload or I'm having an anxiety attack or something, I pretty much can't function. And so suddenly I go from this high functioning place, so to speak on the line all the way down uh, where I might just be rocking in the corner alone. And I might even um, experience selective mutism where I can't speak for a little while. So it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Dan, I wanna know, you know, what it's like being you. I think the best, way for what you call sort of neurotypical persons to understand what living with autism is because I you know throughout your book and even in the beginning it's like you know you do things and we may and I say we but like may take it differently like you're controlling or you're you're being aggressive or you're being this way where really it's it's about your own need for safety and protection and different things and so yeah maybe let's start with that help me understand like your life and how you see 
see the world? Because that might give me an inside look at, at what you experience each day. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, a few things that I would start with. Um, the idea of safety is absolutely critical for me. And I mentioned that a number of times throughout the book. I think of, um, because I'm an educator, I guess I've I've come across uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs many times. It's just that basic pyramid that says, this is what people need in order to flourish. At the very bottom of the pyramid is just safety and, and, and you know food and water and shelter and the psychological understanding that you're safe and that you're okay. And then you go up the scale um, all the way up to um, you know the ability to kind of self-actualize and, and uh, fulfill your destiny, whatever that might be. Uh, but for autistics, I think the safety factor cannot be taken for granted as often as it might be able to for others. And so for me, um, I'll give you an example just from earlier today. I was asked to go to lunch with a couple of colleagues and I got a text as I was driving there that said, hey, we got a seat on the patio, is that okay? And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> is it gonna, if it's too hot, I'm gonna struggle. Um, if, it's, if the sun is in my eyes and I can't really switch seats with anyone, I'm gonna have a very hard time focusing on what anyone's saying. Because essentially I won't feel safe physically. Mm. Um, and and, and it's very, very intense. Um, sensory processing disorder is very, very intense. And until the sensory processing is evened out in some manner, uh, I can't focus on anything else. Um, I'll give one more uh, metaphor, I guess, because I am a writer and I speak in metaphors <laughs> often. Um, there's a chapter in the book, an essay in the book about riding a motorcycle. And <clears throat> I think I look at that as a metaphor for the autistic life. Um, I think most people around me um, who have the neurotypical brain wiring are able to get through most days within a, a range, you know, most days as though they're driving a decent contemporary vehicle, you know, down a road. Um, if, if a bug or a wasp hits your windshield, you're not really gonna experience much from that. It's not gonna be a big deal. If you're riding a motorcycle down the road and a bug hits you at 60 miles an hour, um, it, you're gonna feel it and you're gonna have to make adjustments and accommodations all of a sudden. If you hit a small pebble on a motorcycle in the road, um, your whole life is at risk all of a sudden, which is not true when you're driving a car. So I think um, for the autistic, uh, people like to say stuff like, well, I know autism, they can't make eye contact and they're awkwardly, um, they have awkward social skills, they don't have good social skills. And I say, okay, there's, there's truth in that. However, it's mostly about sensory processing and feeling everything so intensely uh, that happens throughout the day. It's almost like riding a motorcycle down a road rather than driving a car. That's a great, that's great, Dan. That's actually a really great picture. On that note then, I, I you know, I think, you know, I, I guess the question even for me is how then, and I love how you're so about, you know, loving my neighbor. Wow. That's a big theme for See Her Love and for us. Neighborliness, yeah, yeah. otherness, other-centeredness, loving yeah. my neighbor. I think it's beautiful. I love that that's in, entwined and, and, and the thread of within your book. Tell me what that looks like. So if we have what I said, one in 45 people are autistic and we make assumptions or we don't understand, how, how can right. I best love my neighbor in that way? How can I best love, um, you know, someone with autism? Yeah, I think um, 
number one for me really is um, doing doing some of the hard work and getting educated. Um, I just think it's so critical and so important. And and I don't say that um, to a neurotypical population only. I say that to myself. I look in the mirror and I say, if I'm going to love somebody uh, who is a person of color, or I'm going to love somebody who's an immigrant from a certain part of the world, um, I need to do the work to learn about that person's background and the kinds of cultural um, assumptions that were in place and, and all sorts of other things in order to love that person well. I don't have to do that work, uh, but, a, but I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. And so I want to do that work because I want to love people well. And I think you can love your neighbor so much better if you put in that effort. Um, and so I'm not to be self-serving about it, but just picking up a book like mine uh, for the neurotypical would be um, a wonderful step because it's not just a book about autism written from the the, um, uh, the side of research from a doctor or a clinician who treats autistic patients. It's actually the lived experience of, of the autistic life. And in my case, it's not an exceptional life, you know, necessarily. I live in uh, rural Indiana and I teach at this small liberal arts college and I love poetry and music and theater and stuff. Some other autistics are going to be very different. They're going to be into cybersecurity and computers and coding and things like that or, or whatever. Uh, but I think just hearing more stories from people um, so that we can avoid um, the danger of the single story, you know, the one narrative that stands in for, for many people who are so diverse and compelling and interesting. And uh, we should try to understand individuals, I think. So I love that. So you're saying educate ourselves. And I like that what you just said. It, it's not just a single story. You don't just put autism in one story and one experience. Like right. Said, and, it's like and, a color wheel. It's like all these. Different yes. Things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's good. Okay. So, so educate, learn. And I think too, you know, getting to know, uh, you know, autistic and not be afraid. Cause I think there's fear. I'll be honest. I think there's fear. Yeah. What if I offend? What if, right. Okay, here's what, here's the truth, Dan. Uh, what if I feel uncomfortable? What if yeah. I don't know what to do? What if sure. I, you know, of course it's the I. <laughs> uh, and I think that's always the first step in becoming friends, getting to know uh, one another. That's really good. Yeah. And, and I'm telling you that that makes all the difference to autistic people because we will be awkward. We will be in a room and you will not be drawn to us. We are the least magnetic people in the room oftentimes because we we don't make eye contact at the times that people would expect and, or, or sustain it like they would want. We often, if we're nervous, we'll say something that betrays our nervousness. And so we are often the awkward person. You would have to actually be intentional about saying, okay, this person um, is not the one who necessarily draws me in naturally, but you know what? I'm going to go make the effort and just see what's going on here. So yeah, yeah it good. makes a huge yeah. difference. Yeah. And I think that's good. It's a good reminder what you're saying. Like it's the effort. It's actually when loving your neighbor, it, it's, it's intentionality. Yeah, movement. yeah. It is creating right. safe spaces, right? Mm -hmm. it's bringing in, it's inviting, you know. So it's just a good reminder. On that, I, I, I you know, as we talked about following Jesus, I, I want to talk about an honest conversation about the church and and autism because yeah. I, I'm I'm gonna gather we could do a lot better. <laughs> I'm gonna make <laughs> a guess that we can do a lot better. And people who follow Jesus and say that they do. 
and again, it kind of goes off the conversation about neighborliness and otherness, but yeah, your experience, let's talk about that because I, you know, I, I love the church, but I'm also one who says it can be better. It needs to be better. It needs to make some major changes <laughs> within, right in, uh, structure organization and, and, and within people that are followers. So let's, let's yeah. talk about that a little bit in your experience and your thoughts in that way. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and I guess as a caveat, I would say because I'm a writer, um, I often think of myself as perhaps a little too quick to critique institutional life, whether it's a, a you know a university that I work at or the church that I attend or whatever, um, because that's what I do. I think it is a kind of a social criticism is is writing and telling stories about people who are hurting and things like that. Uh, but I love the church as well, and I in particular I love uh, the church that I go to now and have been attending for um, over a decade here in Indiana. Uh, happens to be an uh, Episcopal church, and it just suits me really well. Um, <clears throat> I guess I'll, I'll talk about why it suits me for a minute and then and then kind of okay, the reverse, <laughs> what doesn't help me. <laughs> um, I, I struggle, you know, with, um, like I said, a, a, a lack of structure, um, when routines change, when things happen that are surprising. And so um, it makes perfect sense to me that the, the churches that I struggled in over the years, and I've been to all kinds of denominations at different times, just moving around a lot and trying to find the, a good church. Um, the places that are, are trickier for me are places where things are more spur of the moment and perhaps there's, you know, like a revival service or a big, uh, you know, a prayer or worship uh, service that lasts longer than you would expect or, or people laying on hands, you know, unexpectedly yeah. doing these sorts of things. Those things are tough for me. Um, what I like about the Episcopal Church for me, and this will differ, uh, this will differ for different autistics, obviously, but I like the liturgy. I like that it's the same every week, uh, with the exception of the Lenten season when it changes a little bit, and then we go back after it's done. Uh, but the, the the sung liturgy, uh, I like the responsive scripture readings. I like the prayers of the people. I like the Book of Common Prayer as a um, uh, a guide, you know, through um, through the worship and and it, and it never really changes. It's always the same. And, and I really value that. And, and I um, hunger and thirst after it. When COVID happened and I wasn't able to go to church for a long time, oh, I struggled so mightily. Um, just something as simple as um, going to the altar and receiving the Eucharist, not having that in my life changed me and I didn't like it. It was very, very tough. Wow. Um, so yeah, I guess there's some things that, um, you know, that work for me, knowing who I am as an autistic person, and then things that, things that don't work or things that historically haven't worked. Um, along with that, you get human error everywhere, of course. Um, it, I, I mentioned this in the books, it's just a, a silly example kind of, but it's, but it's frustrating enough. If you go to uh, a church, you know, and, and suddenly the pastor says, all right, all these seats up front are empty, folks. Come on, come on, I'm talking to you. You move up, move up. We gotta see each other. And then suddenly I've selected a seat that's comfortable for me as an autistic person, right where I need it to be. And now I'm being asked to move at the last second with no warning. I'm gonna struggle. I'm really gonna, I'm gonna have a little miniature freak out, at least inside my head, if not outward. So, okay. And I'm not laughing at you, Dan. I'm laughing because as a speaker, I say this all the time at churches. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm just saying when I go and speak at a women's conference, I'm like, everybody move to the front. Yeah. But, you're, but see, this is the education part. When I'm in conversation with you, this is what I learn. Like, it, it's just sort of like a given because you want people to yeah. come to the front because you don't want the space of the back. But yep. now knowing this, I actually made a mental note. Like, I don't, I don't know if I would do that again. <laughs> Say that. Yeah, no, or, we, or like, you know. I know the audience. Like, I mean, again, if you're saying, like what you said again, 145, people are artistic, and my conference is 300 to 500 women. Yeah. And we know that there's at least five, six, seven, potentially within within that meeting. Yeah. And, and you know, um, it's not to say not to do it, but it, it is to say if you see somebody lingering in the back who suddenly looks very nervous by that call don't don't yes. make them feel any worse yes. uh, let them stay where they are or don't call them out publicly or anything like that because you mean like hey uh, lady in the back row. right you come yeah. on up right and i'm okay. telling you that stuff happens sometimes i know good the best melinda, intentions. melinda don't do that yeah. okay actually let's go on that what are the things that i would you say we do without knowing implications it could be simple things do you have examples that might just be helpful um i have a couple that are, that are in the book and i'm trying to think in that chapter i have a couple essays right uh toward the middle of the book about going to church and worshiping as an autistic person um, i guess when we're talking about assumptions for example let's talk mm -hmm. about christian service um i i mentioned the example that my church right now is located in a small rust belt city in middle america where there's a a, um, a huge homelessness problem and there are problems with uh, addiction and, and substance abuse and lots of other things so to meet that need we hold um a dinner for the homeless um twice a month and the line forms around the corner of the building before we even open the door there are dozens of people there um I'm a tough fit, to be honest, to, to, to serve at that event because of the unpredictability of it, because of the social awkwardness of, of speaking with people that I don't know, some of whom have uh, mental health issues or various kinds of disabilities. Um, I'd be at a disadvantage being an autistic person trying to serve in that capacity in the church. I love and I support that, um, uh, that mission and I think it's wonderful. But for somebody like me, I guess the assumption would be, oh yeah, you're a, a you know a healthy parishioner. You should be able to jump in and do the serving this week, or so and so is out sick. You should be able to help out. It's going to be very very tough for me to do that, although I'm willing to try it at times. Something that might be easier for somebody like me. Uh, this is going to sound odd according to traditional gender roles, but um, I love babies, <laughs> so I I like to go in the nursery sometimes when my own kids were younger. I would go in the nursery and for me it's very soothing to hold a baby and sit on a rocking chair in the nursery um you don't expect a guy necessarily to want to do that uh, rather than do something out you know with the uh, in a more public role you know uh with the homeless um doing a dinner and doing that kind of service but um you can't make those assumptions when you have autistic people um in your congregation i guess you just got to ask them and listen carefully and try to roll with it whatever they're able to do because we want to participate we want to serve god that way and we want to um uh be in the part of the fullness of the church as it were 
Dan, that is so good. <laughs> Again, learning how we make assumptions all the time based on, yeah, gender, yeah. based on our own needs or desires or what's comfortable for me. Right, actually right. getting to know you. I mean, the best thing would be to sit down with you and go, okay, what actually does make you comfortable as you serve? And you could say, yeah, actually rocking babies. And I go, okay, right. well, then I'm not going <laughs> to force you to go stand and serve food to these hundreds of people that make you uncomfortable. I think, I think what I'm really hearing is just, again, this whole neighborliness about taking the yeah. time to be intentional to, to allow, like even our conversation of what I'm hearing you say, I am learning. Like I'm literally taking this and going, oh my goodness, mm. I've made assumptions because I didn't ask or I didn't. Sure. I didn't. We all do. Yeah. Choose to, <laughs> to know someone who's autistic and understand where they're at. Wow. Yeah. And so good. So and good. you know, the other piece of that too, is that um, many of us weren't raised with any idea of, of what that looks like at all. And so of course, it's just natural for us not to have that. And, and you know what? Um, to some extent, in generations past, autistic people were institutionalized. To be honest, um, so so it may be like a you know an older person in a congregation might say, "Well, I, of course I don't know how to deal with that. We didn't have that when I was a kid." Well, no, I think autistic people were here. They just weren't. Um, we just weren't aware of them, and we didn't understand who they were, and they went underdiagnosed. And I would say that's particularly true of women on the spectrum. Uh, very underdiagnosed because uh, the diagnostic tools that have been developed were developed mostly for boys and men. Oh. Um, and then also people of color because communities of color um, here in the U.S. typically have um, uh, less access to the kinds of uh, tools uh, to, to help them navigate the mental health system. It's very broken here. It's very complex, very difficult to get into a good counselor into a psychiatrist, into a diagnostician, very, very tough. Mm. Um, and so of course it's, that's always gonna hit, you know, people in poorer communities and, and things like that. So it's a matter of access to some extent, but we're all learning these things. And I think that's great, yeah. So I, so what that's interesting because you're saying before it was autism was, it sounded like it was focused on boys and men, but now yeah. even in your book, you're saying actually it goes, across gender and socioeconomics and yep. culture. Yeah, it sure does. It's, it's all, all people, you know. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's really interesting for me because um, um, I have a student right now, for example, one of the joys of my life is teaching at a Christian college and helping um, young people kind of fulfill their potential and, and flourish in their, in their calling. Um, but in particular, these last couple of years, and especially since the book came out this past summer, um, people know that I'm autistic. It's much more public knowledge now. I'm getting students who come to Taylor who suspect that they're autistic. And usually when someone does, they're right. Uh, I've noticed uh, you know, a good, good chance that they're right because they understand that the way that they fit into the world doesn't line up with the way everyone else does. Um, I notice it's different. Um, I have a young woman of color, so she's got these intersecting identities of being female and being a person of color um, on our campus. And her experience and the way that autism presents in her is going to look very different from how it presents in a white male who grew up on the farm, you know, in Nebraska or something like that. So you, you really have to um, 
uh, kind of see a variety and, and hear from a lot of different people to round out your perspective on how this all works. Yeah. Before I, I, I want you to share some encouragement on for neurotypical persons and then sure. autistics, I want to just talk about just quickly this whole um, gifts of neurodiversity, because I think that's just fascinating and would like to learn a little bit more. But talk to me just a, a bit about that, this and, and you call it the gifts of neurodiversity. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> one of the things I've been learning that I think uh, fits into that category for me is that autistics have uh, the ability to focus really intensely on something that they really love and enjoy. And so you see this in children you'll see like a, 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 an autistic kid um, who has toy dinosaurs and actually knows all the Latin names of all the dinosaurs that ever existed. <laughs> and I mean, so if a normal kid who is into dinosaurs, you know, has a dozen of them, the autistic kid might have a hundred and know all the names and sit and tell you every fact and info dump on you, everything they know, because they're so into this topic. Mm -hmm. Well, that feels maybe disconcerting to a parent sometimes or to a teacher who's trying to teach 30 kids and not just right. that one, of course. However, think about that down the road. Think about that 20 years down the road. We know, for example, that many autistics are drawn to working in Silicon Valley here in the US where Google is headquartered and Facebook and these other tech companies. You know, um, if if they're developing a new technology, let's say like the newest uh, version of the iPhone, I can almost guarantee you, I'd be willing to bet <laughs> that there's an autistic someplace in Silicon Valley working for one of those companies that solved a problem that everyone else gave up on. And that is why we have that piece of technology now, <laughs> because we have the ability to focus intensely and become obsessed with a thing um, to a larger degree than, than the average person. So I would, I would consider that, you know, I look at that kind of as a drawback sometimes, because if I am getting really into something, I have to stop and go to work or, you know, take yeah. my kids to school or whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, it could be a real gift because we could end up contributing to the culture and to the society in interesting ways. For me, it's not going to be technology. It's going to be maybe a story that I write or a poem that I write, but it's still a contribution. Dan, that's beautifully reframing, you know? Hmm like gift versus a problem yeah gift yeah versus you know uh something that is not normal or awkward or uncomfortable I, right I you know what? that's not just with i think i mean i love this conversation within the context of autism but that's just for, i think for a lot of things and people like we see absolutely a problem but what if we reframe as it actually it's a gift when we look at it in the focus of that intensity can be the gift of focus. That yeah. uh, crazy um, way of, of, of celebrating is actually joy and finding the good in something that's difficult. Yes. Do you know I mean like it's this reframing of how we see people in life? That's really awesome. Absolutely. And in the book, I talk about it from the autism standpoint, I talk about it as um, a deficits model versus a neurodiversity model. So we just say, instead of looking at, um, if instead of a checklist that says, the autistic cannot make eye contact, 
the autistic is socially awkward. The autistic cannot deal with interruptions to a routine. That all sounds so negative, uh, not because it's not true, but because it's framed that way. If we say, you know what, we have differences in the way we respond to interruptions. Well, that's more fair because it just means my brain is wired differently from somebody else's, not right. that I'm bad or wrong, you know? Right. I love yeah. that. And I think that's yeah. the other thing too is, is, and even within, you know, the church and culture, I think that pause to say because someone is different isn't something to be afraid of or to right. be scared of or, you know, obviously fear or whatnot, but actually to embrace it as the gift, as as something that that could benefit in relationship and in church community and, and in our neighborhood. Right. right? I mean, Absolutely. I think that's just a bigger, I mean, what you're saying in the book, it's just, a, it's a, it's actually like a bigger <laughs> yeah. love conversation of loving right. our neighbor. Right. And what I think so. Is. Yeah. We've got to allow room for, uh, uh, um, to trust that God is at work, even in things that we don't understand yet, yes. you know? Amazing. Okay, Dan, could talk to you for hours and hours. You probably have to go back to work, school, whatever. Um, but let's just end with this. How about you give some encouragement to, I like how you say, the neurotypical person. So the person who knows someone who is autistic or maybe is afraid of the difference, what kind of encouragement would you give give to us today? Um. For anyone who's who's listening or watching here, um, you're you're already taking a step toward loving your neighbor because you're 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 um, gaining appreciation for somebody who's different, and I think that's a wonderful wonderful thing. I don't ever um, underestimate the value of that. I appreciate that so much. So many times when people have asked me, you know, what could a neurotypical person do as a teacher, as a pastor, or as a friend of somebody on the spectrum? Um, I, I want to encourage them and just say, you know what, um, asking the question is the beginning of love. That makes mm -hmm. me feel safe already when you ask me that question. Um, and so I have a number of friends who are like that. They make mistakes and I make mistakes in the way that I treat them as well. Um, but, but we're aware of each other and saying, I want to love you better than what I currently do. And I'm going to put in the effort. What is it that I can do to help? Um, so I find that very encouraging and, and, um, and yeah, I just, I just would beg people to keep learning more. Don't be afraid. Keep learning more because um, if you heard how uh, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned, you know, autistics carry around a lot of shame uh, from feeling so weird all the time. Well, neurotypicals, you can help, um, you can help redeem us from, from having to carry that shame. You know, you can help us do that by, um, Making us, and making us feel safe. And that's that's a lot of power, actually. That's a really wonderful thing if you wield it yeah. well. Yeah. Beautiful. I received that. I'm taking that all in, Dan. Thank you. And then encouragement to autistics. Like those who are like, I'm here in this and I might be or I'm in it and I know I am and it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. What do you say to them. Yeah, it, uh, it is hard. Um, it's hard for me each day. And I have had the privilege of being able to write this book, find a publisher, um, have a diagnosis. I have a wonderful supportive family. Um, I have a, a great job. I have all these things in place and yet it's uh, autism still makes my life hard 
pretty much daily in, in a lot of small ways that go unnoticed, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be tough. But as I said, uh, you don't have to be ashamed. You can be proud of who you are because you know that you're fearfully and wonderfully made and you're, um, you're made in the image of a loving God and a creative God, and he made you that way for a reason. And um, you don't have to try to fit in, you know, um, anymore. If you know you're autistic, um, claim it and go with it and just see where it takes you. It's, it's different, but, um, but it, it can be a beautiful way of being in the world. I, I, I truly believe that, and I've experienced that in the last couple of years. Dan, it's beautiful. And to finish off, you know, being fearfully and wonderfully made and knowing that. Yeah. Dan, as a follower of Jesus, how has that relationship in the hard and in the struggle really helped you, you know, through just, you know, and again, it's not the quick solve, you know, it's not like where I'm like, I now follow Jesus. Yeah. Everything's good. Everything's perfect. No, 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 yeah. no. But how has that relationship with Jesus um, helped you Easy. yeah well it's like it's kind of like what you were saying earlier melinda with uh, a reframing i think a, a focus on god and, and a life of prayer and contemplation will reframe things from saying okay um these are my problems and i'm struggling so mightily every day to you know what i'm just um i'm just one person out here and guess what i see suffering all around me it's not just the unique um destiny of the autistic to suffer everybody suffers and some a lot um, and so to be able to focus on God and and God's love um, and God's call upon our lives to help each other uh, to love each other to do uh, unto others as we would like done unto us etc um, helps me reframe everything it, it really helps me get out of my own head when I get stuck there um, too much and get out into the world and say, oh, there are many, many other people um, who need help. And so um, uh, I, I just think that that's, if, if I didn't have that frame of reference, I don't know how people do it without God. I don't know how they make either. it. <laughs> I say that a lot. You know? and I know it sounds funny. And I go, I honestly, through some of the most difficult times of my own life, Dan, I, I don't know how people do. Because there's this deep, when everybody is gone, and you're alone yeah. in the fetal position. Yeah. And you are like, I am alone. It's this wonderfully mysterious, strange sense where I'm like, I'm actually not alone. And I've been trying yeah. to convince myself I'm not alone, that God has left me. And yet in this strange way, I actually deeply sense physically and, and all of the, in, in sort of this, the wholeness of it all, that he is with me. And that actually, I yeah. see I, he's never left me, even though are there times I feel like, he's not there yes but then I actually do know that he's there I don't, I don't know it, it yeah you know yeah what I, mean? and, I don't know how yeah, people yeah. do it without God well and I'll tell you we started off talking about story and uh, how how uh, deeply meaningful story is mm -hmm. what we're basically saying I think is that there, there's a um a story about what life is and what it means that says ultimately it's about love and I know the story is, the truth is, the larger master narrative, so to speak, over my life is that I am loved by my creator. Mm, yes. If I didn't have that story, then what story am I subscribing to? That everything's just random or everything's chance or that 
God created everything and then walked away and turned his back on it. I, none of those stories uh, are healing to me. You know? Amazing. All right. Daniel Bowman, Jr., author of On the Spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity. What a pleasure, Dan, to chat with you. Uh, it, it's it been was, a pleasure it was amazing. Uh, for me, too. I so appreciate your thoughtfulness, the the words, uh, the written word, but even in just speaking with me, so clear and full of love and grace and humility, as you shared with me, really, like you are a really amazing man. I just wanted you to know that, just to affirm to you. So thank you for bringing this to the world, this book. Thank you for spending time with me. And I've learned a lot, I've taken notes, and there's some things that I need to change in in within me and in some of these interactions so i appreciate that i appreciate that. me too and and honestly that's my goal too after every interaction to say how can i do better next time yeah. myself but i i so appreciate you having me on um it's wonderful to be here um i have some dear friends and family in canada and so i i go to canada as often as i can Yay. actually to uh, to hamilton ontario yeah that's just and, that's literally down the street here that's literally like yeah. 10, 15 minutes down the highway from us it's a great town and <laughs> i cannot wait till the borders are open and people are yes. safe because i'm going to go get back up to canada and then maybe you'll have to come up into the studio and actually like hang out so again, oh that'd be pleasure. so cool it was a pleasure dan and uh god bless you in all that you do as you teach as you lead as you speak god bless thank you, you so much what a tremendous, inspiring conversation with Daniel Bowman Jr. He told me to call him Dan before uh, we started our conversation, but what great learning. Uh, I think for me, just some of the assumptions I've made, the things I do without consideration of those with autism, how the church can be better, how I can be better, and reframing uh, what we see as a problem or something that you know, causes us issues or whatever, we reframe it to this gift. And I think too, what Dan said about, you know, helping those with autism uh, that struggle with shame because they are different. They don't fit into the world and how they feel about themselves. We don't need to heap more shame um, and point the finger at them that they're different. They know, but how can we be more loving and how can we, uh, become friends and how can we be more understanding how can we listen more how can we include uh, you know autistic people into um, our space as they include us into their space so there's so much about understanding and neighborliness and intentionality and taking the time to learn and listen and grow and read so Daniel Bowman Jr. thank you so much for your thoughts uh, to you listeners, um, I hope you learned a lot and know as we journey together as neighbors, know that you are seen, heard, and deeply loved by God. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for your ongoing support of Crossroads, a supporter-funded nonprofit organization and member of the Canadian Centre for Christian Charities. Thanks to faithful people like you, we are able to continue producing See Here Love. You can write to Crossroads, P.O. Box 5100, Burlington, Ontario, L7R, 4M2, or visit crossroads.ca to learn more about our programs.